Hey, thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. Here at Reveal, our mission is simple. Find God, find others, and find yourself. For more information, visit us online at revealvineyard.com. We're going to jump into our message series. Uh, We actually had a prayer meeting a couple weeks ago. A bunch of people came out and we walked around the church from room to room and uh, we were praying uh, about our future. We were actually we were praying and eating because someone brought a bunch of homemade baked goods so we were eating as we prayed because if you have a church event there needs to be food. That's my theory and so part of what you'll be sweeping up if you come on Saturday will be crumbs from us praying. So uh, we went from room to room and we were uh, praying for you and praying for the people that God will be sending to us and uh, wandered around and just, you know, prayed for our future and what that looks like. And there were moments that I found myself uh, reminiscing about the past. And I realized the excitement is in the future. And the excitement is having our first permanent real church facility. And the excitement is having uh, children's classrooms that can be decorated and designated specifically for them. And the excitement is and all of the ministry opportunities and uh, the baptismal water slide we're building. It's going to be awesome. I get the excitement, Uh, but I was thinking back and just recalling the past eight years plus years of all that's gone into getting us uh, to this point, and there's been a lot of victories, but there's been some, just some uh, crashing defeat as well, and uh, specifically a season three plus years ago um, where I kind of hit the wall, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know if you've been here, I spoke to you about this shortly after it happened, and when my emotional and spiritual tank was on empty and um, things kind of reached a tipping point when I went into a meeting with the owner of a building that I had high hopes for, uh, hoped it would be the place, we needed it to be the place. And we were at the five-year mark as a church and, you know, this portable thing wears on everyone over time and uh, we needed it to be the place and walked into that meeting and after a few minutes it was obvious this, it's not going to happen. And I left that meeting and the door was closed and it was obvious that we would not have a church uh, anytime soon. This was, you know, three years ago. And I remember driving home and just feeling like life and hope was kind of sucked out of me. And what was really one of the lowest points, uh, not only in ministry, but in my Christian experience, I remember I pulled into a parking lot just because I was so weighted down. And I began to send an email to my wife that just... Basically, I said, I'm sorry for dragging you into this. And I'm sorry for dragging our family into this and uprooted our family and asked you to leave a home that you loved and a season of life that you loved for a gamble that just isn't working. And I remember vividly, I told her, I feel like I failed God and I failed our church and I failed our family. And I just, I apologized to her and said, I I, I blew it. And I got an email back from her. Let's just say it was a very persuasive email back. Uh, that told me to stop it, and that was the nice way of saying it. Uh, but you should know that one of the reasons I've been in ministry for 22 years is because I have an amazing wife, and uh, you can recognize her for that, uh, who, whose father was a pastor and whose father's father was a pastor, and she comes from this long line of people in the ministry. She told her parents she will never marry a pastor, and God had other plans for that, and, but she has a way of balancing mood swings because she's been through it and uh, she spoke some truth to me Uh, but 
I, I remember what that uh, moment was like, and I sat in that parking lot for a good while just wondering, you know, what was next, and as my time in ministry ran its course, and do I have the energy to continue, and do I even want to continue, and where is God in all of this as I search for answers, and so I told you that one of the reasons I've been in ministry for 22 years is because of my wife, which is true, but the main reason that I've been in ministry for 22 years is because as a young man, uh, Jesus captured my attention. And I don't say that lightly. He captured my attention. And when I came to faith, faith wasn't added to an already cluttered existence. Faith was a restructuring of life itself for me. And the people that discipled me, I remember them telling me that if, if you're going into this, you are into this fully, that this isn't a half-hearted commitment. And if you go into this, your life is not your own. I remember them telling me Paul's words in Galatians 2.20 where Paul says that I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer me who lives, but Christ lives in me and through me. And I remember coming to that decision at 14 and a half years old and just I was in, I was sold. It was everything in life bowed to Christ. And looking back, I've not been perfect and there's things I wish I would have done differently and wish I would have done better. But when I signed on the bottom line, that was it. I was in and it's now 2014 and I'm sitting in that parking lot and tears are in my eyes, the lowest point I've ever been. And I'm telling my wife, I can't do it. I'm telling God, I can't do it anymore. And there was something in me that was, it was, it was way down deep. It was buried under a lot of pain and a lot of frustration and a lot of questions and little answers. And even as I'm telling God that I can't do this, there was that voice that said, yes, you can. And there was that voice that said, yes, you will, because your life is not your own. And I remember it because the flesh part of me was like, I can't do it. And there's something in me. There was this root that said, you know you can't back out of this because your life is not your own. And until I hear the words of God, because old orders are standing orders, I, I, even in my complaint, even in my tears, even in my God, what is next? There was just something that said, you'll go on. You'll keep moving because Jesus captured your attention. And so there I'm at at a prayer service and I'm remembering that my story is just part of a bigger story. And that I'm part of a story that started long before I stepped into faith, long before I stepped into ministry, long before I stepped into reveal, that I'm part of a story that goes back years before I was ever born and a story that will continue to go forward long after I'm gone. See, the, the past is a funny thing. There are chapters in all of our lives that we live off of. And then there are chapters in our lives that we would rather forget. Maybe you're here and you have some chapters that you would rather forget occurred altogether, but they haunt you and it's the first thing that greets you when your feet hit the ground and it's the last whisper you hear as you drift off to sleep. And the Bible speaks to the past and it, 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 it says that, that, that we can't live in the past but we have to strive for what lies ahead. Matter of fact, Paul, the apostle, who knew probably because of his own life and his own past said that, that we must uh, not live in our past regrets. He says, letting go of the past and fixing our hope, our focus on what lies ahead. 
So Paul tells us that, listen, we have to keep pushing forward. The past can be suffocating and restrictive and can keep us from stepping into our future. And while there are elements of the past that most of us would want to forget, that doesn't mean that the past does not serve a purpose. See, because when it comes to our faith, there is a heritage that is rich and is deep. There is a a collection of saints, both living and past, who believe as we believe today. Hebrews calls it a great cloud, or we could modernize it and say, there's a great crowd of witnesses. Those people who have gone before you and those people who are with you now who claim the name of Jesus as Savior. And Hebrews gives us this imagery that we're not in this faith alone, that while it is your faith, it's not only your faith. That if we look back, our story is part of a much larger story. Our past reminds us that it is not our faith alone. It is the past that allows us to step out of our own timeline and look back to see that we're part of a story that is bigger than any one individual. See, it's the past that prevents us from our focusing, drifting inward and seeing days that are strung together composed only about my feelings and my desires and my existence. Looking back, we're reminded that our story is much bigger than just one person. It is the past That tells of God's story and God's plan and God's design and God's craftsmanship and his wisdom and his impotence to accomplish what he desires. And so I want you to just take a moment and look in the rearview mirror of your faith. I want you to look in the rearview mirror of your faith to discover that it's not only your faith. That it is a chronicle of God bringing people together from all walks of life, every tribe, every tongue, and, and knitting us into this grand narrative that reflects the glory of Jesus Christ. See, that is the story that we are a part of. That is our past. And ignoring our past heritage causes us to dismiss the part that we play in the story moving forward. Ignoring the past story that we're a part of causes us to uproot ourselves and miss the part that we play here and now in the story that God is writing. And so today we start a new series called We Are. Message title is that we are one of many. I want you to realize something. This is quite possibly the last series that we have before we get the keys for the new place. It is my last chance in this building to not only speak to you about our future but to anchor you to our past. Let's pray. Uh, today, we just need you to anchor the past and anchor us in the story that you have been creating and that you have been writing. Let us see the bigger picture. Let us see that faith is not our own, that we are part of this grand narrative that you have been writing. And yes, we individually have decided to follow Jesus. But that puts us in a collective arena with those past, present, and future who call upon the name of Jesus. Let us see the part that we play in what you have been created. That you have been creating. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you about our story as a church, but... Before we can get to our story, we need to go back to the beginning story. And when I say we go back to the beginning, I mean we're going back to about 440 B.C. Those of you who are wondering, I wasn't alive back then. But 440 B.C. is when the oral tradition 
of creation that was passed down from generation to generation landed in the lap of Moses who decided to record the creation story uh, and put it into record for future generations. And so we read part of his writing in Genesis. We're told that God created the universe in a type of shalom, that there was a peace that uh, settled over creation, that there was a rhythm and, and a peace and a wholeness that blanketed creation so that everything worked exactly as it was intended to work. There was without sin and without defect and without error. So we had wine but no alcoholism and we had food and no gluttony and sex without lust and marriage without in-laws. So, but then <laughs> sin entered into the world and it fractured that shalom. It, it tore against the peace. It shattered the rhythm and peace was challenged with chaos and creation spins out of control. Generation after generation living in this hopeless despair and disarray and confusion. But even in the chaos, God had a plan. And somewhere around 850 B.C., God shows himself to a man named Abram. Later, his name would become Abraham. And here's what God says in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house into the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now catch this last part. And in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. Now at this time, no one was interested in blessing other clans that were not part of your family because they wanted your stuff. And so you held blessings close to heart. But God is saying, I'm about to do something that has never been seen, has never been heard. And here, here's what he's saying. I'm about to reestablish shalom upon the earth. I'm about to reconcile creation with its creator. I will reestablish a way to bring peace into the chaos. And Abraham, I'm going to do it through your, your family line. Now, Abraham's response to all this was, God, I don't know if you know this, but I'm old and I have no children. And I don't know if you realize this, but if you think I'm old, my wife, she is really old. She is like death's door old. The baby factory has been closed down for a long time. And God's like, you don't need to worry about that. He's like, forget about it, right? And he's like, I'll, I'll take care of that, that part of it. And so in what took years and years and years of waiting, and Abraham took matters into his own hands and made a mess, and some of it would still exist today, and, and he waits and he waits, and time goes by and years go by, and eventually God gives him the child of promise, and his name is Isaac. And Abraham is beginning to think, well, maybe God really can create something out of my family line that really can bless the entire world. Hey, at least I have a son. That's a start. And then God comes to Abraham and he asks him to do the impossible. Every time Abraham sees Isaac, he's reminded of God's faithfulness, of God's ability to do what others cannot. And God says, Abe, do you trust me? He says, I want you to sacrifice your son. Now, as a father, it is one of the most difficult passages biblically to even get your head around. I don't even like talking about it. And we're told that Abraham gathers supplies and packs up a donkey and he heads up the mountain. Now, Isaac at this point is not a baby. There's, there's conflicting reports on how old he was, but he was certainly old enough to know what was going on. Some put him into his late teens, some read put him older, but he was, this wasn't a child. And as they're a baby, as they're going up to the mountain, Isaac asks his dad, he says, Dad, you said that we're going 
for a sacrifice, but where is the sacrifice? He says, Dad, where's the ram? And then we get a glimpse into Abraham's thought pattern and into his faith where he, he tells his son, he says, son, God will provide. He's saying, look, I don't know how this is going down. I don't know why this is going down, but I have to believe that God did not give me a son just to take my son. And so in faith, I am believing that God will provide the sacrifice. And sure enough, at the place, there is a ram caught in the thicket. In Genesis 22 now, the angel speaks. And an angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, there is a nod foreshadowing it to God who would sacrifice his only son. I surely will bless you and I surely will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemy and catch verse 18 and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God's saying, look, I'm working out a story and a plan. I'm writing a story that will affect every person in every nation. It's just not the Jews. It's just not the Israel. It's going to be given to everyone. And this becomes the consistent and constant language of the Old Testament. You cannot read the Old Testament without pointing back to God's promise to Abraham that he was doing something. You cannot read the Old Testament without it pointing back to the the promise and pointing forward to the promised fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is the common language. It's a consistent language. Every king, every leader, every story, every prophet, it's all pointing back to this promise and pointing forward to the promised fulfillment. And so Abraham has Isaac and Isaac has Jacob and Esau. From Jacob comes the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel and from the 12 tribes come a nation. And so we could say, hey, God did it. God created a nation out of Abraham. Well, yes and no. They were a nation, but they were a nation of slaves. And they were in Egypt who was worried about how quickly they were multiplying and that they would eventually outnumber them and take over. And so Pharaoh's solution was to put the Jews on his ambitious building projects and to overwhelm them with slave labor. And now hundreds of years go by and they're caught in slavery. And at this point, you'd have to look back and if you were a Jew to ask, is this what God intended? I mean, we are children of Abraham. We know the promise that God said that from us, every nation, every person on the earth will be blessed and yet we are in slavery. God can't bless us. How's he gonna bless the world through us in hundreds of years in slavery. And God sends a deliverer by the name of Moses. And through many plagues and much convincing, Pharaoh releases a nation to live in freedom for the first time. And now, out of slavery, they spend 40 years in the wilderness looking for the promised land. We jump forward, we're now about a thousand years since the promise that was given to Abraham and to Sarah. And so Abraham and Sarah have Isaac and the family, uh, they become a family and the family becomes a clan and the clan becomes a nation and the nation becomes a kingdom known as the kingdom of Israel. And now if we fast forward through leaders and through judges and through kings, some who were God-fearing and many who were not, Fast forward through prophets who continually called God's people back to God and they take one step forward and they take two steps backwards away from God. 
And yet we see that God continued to show patience and discipline, trying to bring his people back to him and keep them online with the story that he's been writing. Remember, everything that God is working towards is in the fulfillment of Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 and pointing forward to the fulfillment of Jesus. Eventually, we get to 400 years of silence. The 400-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is the silent period. God does not speak. There are no prophets, and the world is waiting. And if you're Jewish, you're thinking, again, we are children of Abraham. We know the promise given some 1,600 years ago, but all we've known is chaos and war and devastation. Our people have been overrun by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks are coming and the Romans after that. And here we're waiting and yet God has not fulfilled the promise. And then, when the time is right, Paul says God unfolds his plan in this way. Look at Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And Jesus enters into and continues this global language of God reconciling all people. He says it like this in John 10. He says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. See, Jesus is communicating to uh, Jewish uh, followers, and he's saying, but it's just not about the Jews, that I have other sheep who are not part of the Jewish clan, but they will listen to me, and they will follow me, and there will be one shepherd, and there will be one flock. In other words, Jesus is saying, what we're about to do is not just a Jewish thing, but it's Jew, Gentile, Greek, male, female, insider, outside. And so Jesus gathers his disciples, and he begins to train them for three years. He teaches them and shapes them, corrects them when when it's needed. And at the appointed time, Jesus prepares himself for sacrifice. We spent the last several weeks going over his betrayal and his arrest and his trial. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection. And all of this, it's all pointing back to God's promise that through your family line, I will do something through you, Abraham, that the entire world will be blessed. And Jesus goes to the cross in fulfillment of that promise. Three days, there is a resurrection. Jesus gathers his disciples. He gives them the Great Commission. Where he says, this is what you are to be about. Just don't sit around and remember the good old days. Here's what your mission is. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe what I have commanded you. And Jesus leaves, ascends to heaven. 120 of his followers go into an upper room in Jerusalem, and they wait. Jesus said, just don't do anything until the promise comes, and wait, and they wait, and they pray, and they lock the doors, and they pray, and they wait. And then just when they thought it wasn't going to happen, the promise of the Holy Spirit comes. Acts 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all in one together in one place and suddenly they came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were filled with the holy spirit began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them 
utterance. Suddenly, these disciples who weeks earlier were hiding in fear during the crucifixion are now filled with boldness, and they walk out into the streets of Jerusalem with a simple message that, that Jesus is the Son of God. You killed him. God raised him. We saw him, and you have a decision to make. And at that moment, at that day, 3,000, at least the Bible says, 3,000 people were added to the Christian faith in a single day. And at that moment, the church is born. 3,000 people needed a place to to fellowship and to learn and to serve and, and to worship together. And the local church was formed. A gathering of believers in the name of Jesus. But we had a problem. Because God's promise through Abraham was for the entire world. And at this point, the only people reached have been Jewish. There is not one Roman, not one Greek. There's not one Gentile. They're all Jews. Faith was spreading and the church was even growing. But it was a Jewish blessing. And here's the thing. The Jews liked it that way. Because they put themselves so high above the Gentiles and anyone who was not Jewish. And so for this to be a Jewish blessing, they were fine with that. Things change in Acts chapter 10. There's a man named Cornelius. All we know about him is that he was part of what is called the Italian cohort. I think he was part of the mob or something. So joking, wasn't it? And Cornelius was a God-fearing man. He was not Jewish, but uh, Acts tells us that he prayed daily. He walked justly. He he, He was sowing into righteousness. And an angel appeared to him and said, Cornelius, there is a man named Peter who is in Joppa. I want you to send some of your soldiers, and I want you to bring him back here. Well, the next day, Peter is praying on a roof in Joppa. And as he's praying, he has this open vision of a blanket that is lowered down from heaven. And inside of the blanket, there are all of these unclean animals because of Jewish dietary restrictions. All these unclean animals. And Peter's watching this happen. And then God speaks to him. He says, Peter, get up and eat. And Peter's like, I ain't eating those unclean things. And Peter, matter of fact, he says, look, I have not eaten anything unclean. I have not even touched anything that is common. I won't do it. And God says, Peter, if I created it, it's not unclean. Now get up and eat. And Peter's like, I'm not eating. The Bible says that the, that the, the vision occurred three times. And Peter's like, I'm not doing it. And the vision vanishes. And then it says that Peter was inwardly perplexed. And so he's debating with God. And while he's debating with God, there's a knock at the door. Now, when Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called and asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And they tell Peter, they say, Peter, there's a man named Cornelius, and he's a Gentile, and he wants you to come to his house. Now, you need to understand, for a Jewish man to go into a Gentile's house was forbidden. And so Peter's like, what is God up to? He's sending me to a Gentile's house, and Peter's like, all right, I'm going to go, but I'm bringing some of my buddies, because if something breaks out, I ain't going into this bar fight alone. And so he grabs a couple guys with them, and they head into Jerusalem, and Peter Peter shows up, and and, um, Cornelius, in anticipation of Peter's arrival, he Uh, invites all of his family and all of his friends over. And so Peter walks into this room of Gentiles. He's like, this is awkward. And, and, And Cornelius says, Peter, I asked you here because I had a word from God. An angel came to me and said that we should send for you because you would have a message for us. And Peter's like, it's starting to make sense. Peter's like, 
this might no longer be a Jewish thing. Maybe the vision I had of these, of these animals coming down that I considered unclean and God said, if I created them, they're not unclean. Maybe I've been looking at the Gentiles completely wrong. And maybe the blessing is expanding. And so Peter says, uh, look at verse uh, 27, 28. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate uh, with or to visit anyone from any other nation. But God has shown me that uh, I should not call any person common or unclean. It's all starting to make sense. And so Peter begins to share the gospel message. And in the middle of the message, the Holy Spirit drops. And, and all of Cornelius' family begin to speak in tongues. And the, the Jews that were with Peter were like, that wasn't supposed to happen. This was our blessing. And, and Peter's like, if God gave the same spirit to them that he gave to us, then what keeps us from baptizing these Gentiles? And you could just hear the other Jews that he brought with him. Like, you know what keeps us from baptizing them? Murder, because they're going to kill us when, when they find out, right? The, 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 the other Jewish leaders. And so Peter's like, baptize them. And by the time they get back, word had already spread. And the church already heard that the Spirit was given to these Gentiles and it created, created this huge blow up in the church. And so they get back and the Christian leaders are asking, was Cornelius and his family circumcised before you baptized him? And Peter's like, the dude's 42. Little past circumcision. And there was this huge debate that took place. We see the Council of Jerusalem it occurs in Acts 15 that puts us about 39 A.D., And the church decides, although very tense, the church decides that this blessing is for everyone. Jew, Greek, Gentile, and that Gentiles need to be embraced in the blessing and embraced by the church. And this sparked an explosion of growth of the gospel message. Because now the message of Jesus was not just limited to the Jews. So in 42 AD, Mark, the gospel writer of Mark, the evangelist, He takes the gospel message to Egypt. He is considered the father of the Coptic Christians in Egypt. You heard about the tragedy that occurred in the Coptic church during Easter and worshiping and celebrating the resurrection and bombs going off. Their heritage lies in Mark who went and brought the gospel message to them. Matter of fact, he goes back several years later and discovers in 61 AD that that Christianity has exploded and it brought him into animosity between Mark and and, uh, Egyptian, non-Christian Egyptian leaders. In 68 AD, he was grabbed by an angry mob and uh, him and several others were uh, martyred. His body tied to a horse and dragged throughout the city until he was dead. In 49 AD, Paul goes into Turkey carrying the message of salvation. In 51 AD, he goes to Greece. In 52, the Apostle Thomas becomes a missionary to India, and he brings the gospel message into a land that says Jesus is Savior. Tradition tells us that he was killed when he was confronted by a Hindu priest, and he insulted their deities. And you can almost hear Thomas saying, look, I touched the man's hands. I don't care how many deities you have. They bow to Jesus. Tradition says he was ran through with a spear. In 55 AD, Paul heads on his third missionary journey. And by this time, Paul is writing the book of Romans where he says, wherever we go, Gentiles are receiving the gospel message with power. 
He said, that doesn't even sound crazy to them. We show up and tell them the gospel and it's almost as if they already knew. He said that it's like God wrote something upon the heart of man that, that, that calls them to understand that there's something more. There's a creator out there that loves them. And he said, we, we show up and people are receiving the gospel in powerful ways. We jump ahead to 174 A.D. The first Christians are reported in Austria. 280 A.D., we have the first written knowledge of rural churches appearing in northern Italy. And up to this point, Christianity was, was an urban religion. And it begins to break out even into the, the rural uh, locations. 350 A.D., over half of the Roman Empire are Christians. 432 A.D., St. Patrick heads to Ireland. We celebrate this by drinking green beer and getting smashed and pinching each other. But there was another mission behind it. And in 596, Pope Gregory the Great sends Augustine and some uh, missionary monks into what is now England to reintroduce the gospel. They are greeted by uh, King Ethelbert. He writes this to Augustine. He says, your words are fair. This is uh, his response. He says, your words are fair, but doubtful of meaning, he's saying to Augustine. He said, I cannot forsake what I have believed for so long, but because you have come from so far away, we will not molest you. And you may preach, and you may gain as many believers as you can to your religion. So the missionaries settle in, and in two years they baptize 10,000 people. In 635 AD, the first Christians arrive in China. In 740, Irish monks uh, reach Iceland. In 900 AD, missionaries uh, fall into Norway. In 1200, the Bible is, is available in 22 different languages, handwritten. 1498, the first Christians are reported in Kenya. In 1550, the Bible's available in 29 different languages. In 1554, 1500 Christians, are 1500 people converted to Christ in what is now known as Thailand. And we could go on and on and on watching the story of God and how the gospel message spreads. But let me modernize it for you a little bit. In 1985, a small group of men and women gathered together. For a Bible study. At the same time, there was a young man who gave his life to Christ for the first time. Bible study was led to a non-denominational church plant called our Father's House Fellowship. In March of 87, there was about 25 people there. A year or so after that, our Father's House Fellowship became affiliated with the Vineyard Movement. In 1987, a now very handsome, young, and talented man joined that church in 1995, 1994, this man became a pastor on staff. And in 2007, God began to stir something and the world was flipped upside down. In October of 2007, 20, 25 people gathered in a house to talk about a new church coming to the surprise area. And we wrestled on names and finally after a knockdown, drag out fight, we settled on this name called Reveal. I don't even know if anybody liked it, but I did. So we just moved ahead with it and Started thinking, well, where do we plant a church? And we planted church in Surprise. And at that time, Surprise was overflowing with churches. Every school had them. There was a waiting list to get in. And yet God says, here's where I want you. We start our first service, June of 2008, in Alter Star Theaters with the smell of popcorn in the air. God brought people in from all walks of life that 
began to build a church and sow into a church that just wouldn't be a church within walls because we were portable, that we would be a church outside of these walls. And to the best of our ability, and we've put a lot of investment into our community of going into schools and house painting and park beautification and helping people in need who have never stepped foot in our doors. And that you are those people that God began to, to gather together to form a church that would have a good reputation in the community. Fifteen months later, we moved into this performing arts center. And let's face it, we've kind of, at times, had peaks, and at other times, we've limped along being a a one-day-a-week church. It's not easy. But in May of 2017, a small group of ragtag men and women will move into their first permanent building to see what God can do. (laughs) Through a group of men and women who come together under a united cause. Look, obviously, this is a remedial, bird's-eye view of Christian history to get us to this place. But it all goes back to Genesis 12 and to Genesis 20, where God said, I'm doing something amazing, and no one will stop this story. And throughout all of the Old Testament, it's God working that story out. And through the birth of Jesus, it's the fulfillment of that story. And then through the rise of the church, it's a continuation of that story. We are part of what was spoken about through the prophets. We are part of the fulfillment of Jesus' mission to build the church. We are heirs with the early church that sacrificed everything because they believed that Jesus Christ still matters. We are part of their heritage. And now the story continues to push itself forward over and over and over again. This is our history. Look in the rearview mirror of your faith to discover that your faith is not just your faith. There are men and women and children who have given everything because of Jesus. And we are part of their story. That God in his wisdom has woven together a bunch of people from all walks of life to continue his story forward. When life is easy, the story continues. When life is hard, the story continues. We reveal, play a part in this story. The reality of it is is every other footnote, every other story is but a footnote in history. And today, 2 Chronicles 16 is true that the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth. I always pictured kind of that eye of Mordor going along like that, but that's a whole other story. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And today the eyes of the Lord move throughout our congregation, throughout our community, throughout our state, throughout our nation, throughout the world. And he's looking for someone who just does not say yes to salvation, but says yes to being part of the story that he is writing. And when that individual says yes, God begins to pin them in to be a storyteller, to move the greatest story ever told forward. And we are stepping into that moment. And so the eyes of the Lord move across this congregation to land on a heart that is completely His. You see, there is a community that needs to hear the salvation story. There are children who need to know. There are marriages that need hope. There are those facing death need the assurance of an afterlife. There are addictions that need to be broken and marginalized who need to find a place. But hear me very carefully. It does not happen 
if we go forward with the current structure of volunteers that we have right now. And so here's what I'm asking you to consider. In the weeks to come, there'll be a table out in the lobby. And I'm asking that you would consider stepping into your story. Stepping into being part of his story. A move is coming. A great reveal migration. And to make it happen, we need your help specifically in four areas. We need people who are going to serve as coffee bar baristas. So not just drip coffee, but making some mixed coffee drinks and some Italian sodas, and there's a ministry opportunity for you. We need people who are going to step into that. We need people who are going to step in as greeters, especially if you speak Spanish. We need people who are going to step into children's ministry. We need people who are going to step into being on a cleaning rotation, uh, you know, once every other week or once every three weeks to help uh, clean the facility. So... I'm placing this before you. I won't twist your arm. It's not who I am. It's not who I will ever be. But here's what I've come to realize. When I look back at the history that I'm a part of and the story starting in the promise of Genesis 12 and all that has taken place and all that God has worked and bringing me to this place and to see all that God has worked through in people's lives, my life, other people, past, present, and future Why wouldn't you want to be a part of this story? Why wouldn't this be something that's worth sacrificing for? Why wouldn't this be worth signing on the dotted line and saying, I will be a part of continuing this story moving forward? And so I'm asking that you would consider what your role is, what your part is. You're going to need new leaders with creative ministries and ideas and ways to reach into the community. And I'm just telling you, Reveal, We have been a a one-day-a-week church for eight years. We cannot step into what we want to be as a church and what I believe God wants us to be as a church unless we're doing this together. And so here's your invitation. To be part of a story that is bigger than yourself. Let's pray. Father, there is a move that is coming and I believe it's has been written in your plan since the beginning of time. I believe that reveal is part of the plan that you have worked into being. That we play a part in the movement of the gospel message going forward. That we play a part in representing Jesus in our community. That we play a bigger part in representing you to the hurting and to the lost and that the best part of our story is still ahead of us. And so today I pray that you would rally us. Rally us as those who have an individual faith, but that faith have placed us in an arena collectively with other men and women, past, present, and future, who are all part of the same story. And let us step into the next season that you have for us. We pray for the salvation of hundreds and thousands. We pray for marriages to be restored. We pray for children to hear the gospel message. 
We pray for addictions to be broken. We pray for lives to be transformed. We pray for those who would walk through our doors that would hear the gospel message for the first time and it would just explode inside of them, much like it did for so many of us. And so my hope, Lord, is that we say yes to being your future storytellers. To be part of this incredible narrative that you have been weaving together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, reveal. First thing we can do together is uh, sweep a floor. Saturday, 8 o'clock. I hope you can be there. We do this together, and we do it extraordinarily well because the kingdom is worth it. God bless you guys. Hey, if you're a first-time guest, I'd love to meet you down front. If you'd like prayer, we'd love to pray for you. And uh, look forward to seeing you next week as we continue the series.